check is flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Oh, my God. Hello again, friends, and welcome into mile 159 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Phil, welcome aboard. How are you, bud? Uh, It's good to see you, Travis. I am ready for this evening. I see you are. You got your breathe right, no strip on. I got my dots to help fuel this episode. We are ready. Well, I took about 10 days off from running, and my fitness has deteriorated so much that I need to wear a breathe right to record a podcast. (laughs) It's well, been- you took you took 10, 11 days off. I've been off for uh, six or seven weeks, and I've just totally given up and crushing some Halloween candy right now. So Nur- Nursing that foot on doctor's orders on a high dots diet. Uh, go back a full year. We know that's your Halloween candy of choice. Well, let's, let's unpack that a little bit more, Phil. October, Halloween, that means the dots are out. Mm-hmm. You're sending me pictures of you indoctrinating your daughter with this filthy candy. Oh, she loves these things. To pivot just slightly from that, I think October might be my favorite month of the year. Would you rank for me top three favorite months on the Gregory family calendar? Ooh, I think I'm with you. Let's go with October's got to be number one. Yeah, I think so. celebration of the change of the seasons. The leaves are changing. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're in race and shape, then you have some marathons coming along. If you're tuning off the season, then you get just some relaxed, enjoyable miles out in the nice, cool weather. Yeah. So October's got to be number one. Number two's got to be June. Ooh. Days are getting longer. My birthday. Up, but still not hot. Well, and I think back to the, the summer of 2020 that we shared together of uh, those nice early morning miles where it was oh, yeah. nice and cool out there. But still warming up through the day. Man, number three, I'll give you my top three. Number three will be March. Um, okay. Partly because it's my birthday month, but uh, yeah. partly because the time changes, the days are getting longer, the flowers are blooming. We are finally out of the doldrums of winter. March Madness. So that's oh, very true. Yeah. Um, so that'd be my top three. Yeah, I'm going to go October 1. I'll go back to back. November's number two for me. Ooh, okay. I still like the weather as it cools and Thanksgiving, uh, my favorite yeah, holiday of the that's year. That's my favorite holiday. Yeah. And it's funny because as I thought about third, before we talked about this, I was considering June and March as my, Ooh. as my uh-huh. options for third. And I think I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go March because I do like the running weather. Typically that time of year, love the basketball tournaments. You move toward the end of it. You got the Masters, which I, I don't even care that much about golf, but I just really like the scenery. It's just uh-huh. beautiful. Like it's it's the archetype for spring when yes. you see the Masters oh, yeah, on absolutely. TV. So yeah, I'll, I'll go October, November, March as my number three. I, I like those picks. What do you got for your least favorite? 
uh, I don't love the hot weather, so I'm probably going like August. Uh-huh. I would probably pick the extremes. I'm going to go like August or maybe February, something yeah. like that. Either the hottest or the coldest. Now, January, I can normally get through because you're riding high off of Christmas, the mm -hmm. new year, the holidays. It's a little easier to get through. So yeah, I'll say, especially in South Carolina, I'd take August. Okay. It's, just, okay. it's hot. It's yeah. sticky. No, there's nothing enjoyable about it. I'm, I'm going to flip that, but I like those two choices. February is definitely my least favorite. Because you're coming off of four months with short days, cold mm -hmm. weather. You go into work and it's dark. You come out of work and it's dark. You haven't trained in the daylight and forever. I'd quit your job, Bill. Why, well, why you, I mean, why are you going to work in the dark and not training? Just quit. I'll talk to the wife about that one. <laughs> hey, let her know that dots are a cheap diet. That's right. Oh, well, and I won't live too long off of these things either. So <laughs> we can make it work. <laughs> Phil, it's been a little while since we've done this. We've had a lot of life happening for you. You are, you're nursing that injury. We're getting, coming back towards health. I've been uh, knee deep in a house remodel. Anyone who's got good farmhouse rehab ideas, please email the show secondsflatpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. We'd love to hear it. While we were gone, Marathon World Records, first at Berlin, Elliot Kipchoge got another men's title in 202.42, but he was not the story of the day. Tix Decefa won in a record 211.53. She was in that Adidas shoe that we talked about mm -hmm. last time we recorded. We'll come back to that, put a pin in it. That was followed by Chicago. And at Chicago, Ruth Chepanjedic took aim at Decefa's new mark. Before a big fade allowed your girl, Safan Hassan, to win in course record time. Interesting to think about what maybe she could have run. It was the second fastest time ever, but there was a pretty big positive split on it. Mm -hmm. She might be able to sniff around that marathon world record. And then, of course, Kelvin Kiptum shook the marathon world with his two hours and 35 seconds world record. As an aside, at Chicago, it was also a good day for the Americans as Connor Mance ran 207.47. Clayton Young ran 208 flat, so they both unlocked the Olympic standard in two spots at least for the Americans. We at least claimed two spots for the, uh, the Olympic marathon going forward. Yeah. Yes, in Paris. I feel confident about a third spot in part because of what Galen Rupp did. Uh, mm -hmm. running at 208 high, fading down the road. But we didn't come out of it with Galen Rupp. Is he hurt like we have for the past year or so? Of course, we will dive much deeper into the trials later on. But I think he, he is once again a real threat to win the American Olympic Marathon trials. Well, I think that makes it interesting as we head into the trials of there are a bunch of guys that could be going for, well, the, the first slot, but certainly the third slot. Mm -hmm. But having them chasing that that standard versus just chasing placings for the race. Yeah, you know what else will be interesting there, Phil, is there's a number of ways to unlock those spots. It isn't mm -hmm. just through three Americans breaking the time number. We have to look at world rankings too. There's a very real chance that hypothetically, let's take Galen Rupp, who's going to get some points from his performance in Chicago, could come mm -hmm. and run a half quickly. Yep. And then combine that with the trials, and it might create enough points to unlock another spot as well. And, and it's not even the world marathon rankings. It's the road to Paris ranking, which is a slightly different formula. 
for a whole other day and another episode. But yeah. I feel confident we'll see three American men and three American women going to, to Paris in 2024. Let's play this forward, Phil. The, the marathon world records have been discussed quite a bit. Let's look into the future. The next logical breakpoints here are a man breaking two hours in competition, not mm-hmm. staged uh, breaking two Kipchoge event, and a woman breaking 210. So mm-hmm. I guess the question to you, Phil, is when does it happen? Or how about I do this? I'll set an over under at three years. Ooh, okay. Do we see these numbers, a sub two in competition marathon and a sub 210 women's in competition marathon before or after three years from now? So I'll arbitrarily say Chicago 2026. I think that's, I'll at least give you 50 50 odds on that. If you would give me between now and LA 28, I would almost guarantee it. Mm. Um, and you know, thinking just from, from the calendar perspective, I don't know if we see it in the next year, just with all these folks preparing for Paris, mm-hmm. you know, really with the folks that race in Chicago and Berlin, training most likely is going to shift to either making their national teams or, or racing well in, in Paris. But the couple of years after that, absolutely. I think both of these, these standards fall. Um, I mean, you got Kelvin Kiptum, running two hours, 35 seconds. Uh, his debut was only last year and still ran under two hours and two minutes. So he still has a ton of upside potential. And then even looking at what he did you know, in Chicago this year, he was, what, 60-48 for the first half, 59-47, which is flying for the second half. Mm-hmm. So I think there's more potential in him there. And as well, you look at how he ran the race. I mean, he was in a pack of three, what, from 10K on? Uh, he dropped the pace or halfway and then his training partner, what, around 30 K or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. So you, you get him in a race where he has pacers that can, can hang with him and other guys around him that are, that are pushing him versus him running solo for the past eight miles. Yeah. I think that, that record, I don't want to say falls easily, but it is certainly within range. I think it definitely falls in the next couple of years. Yeah. To the Kipton pacing point at Chicago, I feel similarly to when we discussed the previous world record that Kipchoge set at Berlin, where he got out really (laughs) hard in the first half and faded a little bit because he thought maybe this is my day. I tell you, I think if if Kiptum runs somewhere between 60-15 and 60-30, he probably sets himself up really well to make it happen. You're right. There was really no help for him for the entirety of the second half. We're nearing a point where it is going to be a challenge to get him or someone else attacking this number, a pacer who can go beyond halfway and actually do all the work. Uh, Getting someone to pace through 30K on sub two pace and run the style that he likes to run Mm-hmm. is very challenging and someone is going to have to sacrifice. I mean, you're talking potentially a world-class runner sacrificing his spring or fall peak half marathon or marathon. I'm sure they'll get a good payday to do it, but yeah, that's a lot to ask. Phil, we, we intentionally do not have much doping conversation here. But it's impossible to answer this question without acknowledging how dramatically these times have fallen in recent years, particularly on the women's side. Mm-hmm. And, 
And then couch that with the news this week of the 10-year ban of 202 man Titus Sekiru, who is one of the 10 fastest marathoners of all time. I, I think he might be like fifth or sixth on the all-time list. And he's got a ban of 10 years for one, doping, but two, working with a doctor to cover the whole thing up. That in the context of how many doping bans we have coming out of Kenya this year in particular is concerning. But I do think to just to play devil's advocate to myself, the money in marathoning is enticing the top runners away from the track at an earlier age. And the technology and training methods are advancing. So it's certainly not all about drugs. But I, I, just as a, ca- a caveat, I think it must be considered because I don't know how you felt, Phil, but I was nowhere near as excited about these two marathon records as I was even about Kipchoge a few years ago. Yeah, I agree. And I think, well, and to some degree, I'm somewhat of a, a jaded fan, you know, mm-hmm. having followed cycling for 20, 25 years and seeing what continually happens year after year through that sport, you know, I'm under no impressions that what we are watching is totally clean, but nevertheless, these are incredible performances, but as well to your point, even beyond looking at running and what's been happening with the recent bust, looking at across the endurance sports world with, with what's been happening in cycling specifically, you know, the past year or two, with just these incredible performances. You know, you look at the the final time trial in the Tour de France this year when the winner, Jonas Vingago, wins by 5% over his second uh, mm-hmm. competitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this in a race that is being fought within seconds over, you know, 19, 20 days. And certainly not to accuse anybody, but looking at what's happened between just the shoe technology over the past, you know, what, seven years, you know, how training has changed, partly probably because of COVID and, mm-hmm. you know, these shutdowns where a lot of these athletes have, you know, multiple years to develop fitness and build a base rather than, you know, these six-month cycles of training for one race after the other. And then other things that we just simply don't know about at this point, there's been some tremendous advances within just the past year or so. Yeah, multiple years as well, Phil, to perhaps not be in the testing pool consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the less you race also, the less likely you are to be in that testing pool. I can't speak to Asefa and and I don't want to accuse, given how few road races she has run and the times at which she ran them prior to this, I would have suspicions that she was probably out of that testing pool uh, for mm-hmm. extended periods of time. You know, this, the cycling parallel is interesting because the reference to that final time trial at, at the tour this year, I, I believe is similar to what Asefa in particular did to the marathon world record. Yeah. Uh, cycling suspicion, it's its just an assumption, right, in cycling. Uh, we can look at, it's been about three decades ago when we saw a cleaning of house after a, a widespread number of doping instances in which riders were caught and times fell back, but only for a short time. And then immediately mm-hmm. they were riding just as fast. In some ways, the, the suspicions here feel to me a bit like we're, we're returning to some of the things I thought about running like in the late 90s and early 2000s when EPO became more widely available. 
Yeah, I, I don't know, but I feel a little uneasy about these times for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I frankly feel I, I'd rather watch sub-elite runners who I work with, who I know are clean. I'd rather watch the the joy of the pack of the people trying to get a BQ. I don't know that these times carry weight because they're just shrouded in doubt. To answer my own question, I guess, before we move on here on the, the three years over under, I'm going to take the over on the women's number. I still think 210 is a big jump. I, I'd be surprised to see it soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you're right, probably 2025 is the next realistic time that we see guys gunning for these numbers. Although I don't know what motivates Kiptum. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the Olympics clearly motivated Kipchoge in his prime. Kiptum may be motivated by a whole lot of cash and fame and winning yeah. a major more than he cares at all about the Olympics. Yeah, He might be more worried about Berlin or Valencia next year. I'm going to take the under on the men's number. And in part, I'm going to take it because, gosh, three years, where are we on three iterations of super shoes from now also? That combined with these other aspects, the training, and, and, and I hate to say it, but maybe the first male or female who goes under these numbers later gets popped <laughs> in, in the testing protocols. I, I'm going to say under three years for a man, over for a woman to break 210, under for the man to get under two hours. I think that's fair. And I, I think the one thing that you kind of touched on, but is the progression in shoe technology. You know, we're... You know, since 2016, we're used to seeing advances of 4%, potentially 5% improvements in running economy. But with, you know, particularly this new Adidas shoe, the new Alpha Fly 3 that's coming out, you're seeing some of these, what they call hyper-responders, where you're getting 7 to 11% improvements in running economy. So figuring out the athlete that responds best to that specific shoe They're playing around with it now, but getting better testing protocols of what works best for what athlete, you know, between the foam and the bending of the plate and their foot strike. I think you're right. I think the the men's is easily within in the next three years. The women's, it's a bigger ask to go, well, we have a minute, 53 seconds to get under fit under 210. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit bigger ask. But, you know, to Asefa's credit, you know, she's it's not like she doesn't have the track speed. You know, she what ran for Ethiopia in the 800 in 2016. So it's not like she's come out of nowhere, even though she's relatively new to the marathon. And this Um, is four minutes faster than what she ran a year ago. Right. uh, Last point on this one, Phil, uh, to what you're saying on the shoes. A very good discussion of this uh, as a recommendation on the Real Science Sport podcast with Ross Tucker. On one of their recent episodes, uh, Ross Tucker dove into the variations in economy that show up in all of the lab testing on these shoes and made a very real and viable argument that just given how much they respond to the shoes, there is a very possible chance that Acefa, previous world record holder Bridget Cosguy, and then Paula Radcliffe, who held the record for over a decade but had no super shoes, could all be at the exact same level of fitness but mm-hmm. response to shoe could explain all of the variability. That doesn't mean it does, but there is a statistical argument that would suggest it's possible. Yeah. 
Let's pivot from this. Good discussion, Phil. But let's go to another recent marathon event, one that I really enjoy. That's the Japanese Marathon Grand Championships last weekend. Did you see any of that uh, stream on YouTube? I didn't catch it, but I saw the highlights of what lovely weather it seemed that they had to train or to race in. Yeah, it was a disaster in a in <laughs> heavy rain, which meant it was perfect for our guy Yuki uh-huh. to go for it again. In a replay of Boston 2018, he went hard off the front in rough, rainy conditions, held the lead through, I want to say, close to 35K, faded, and actually made another move, something you rarely see when someone falls off after that big early gap gets Mm -hmm. closed. He fell just outside of the podium, finishing fourth. Your winner is Naoki Toyoma. In 208, despite entering as the 30th seed, I believe, in this field, former Japanese record holder Suguru Asaka finishes third. The intrigue behind this event is the format, which we'll talk more about because I like it as we look at like the future of the marathon mm-hmm. and what it could mean for American marathoning. But Osaka can get now knocked out of the three-man Olympic team If one of the other top Japanese runners breaks, I believe it's 206, it might be 205.50 at one of the big domestic races. So you have coming up uh, Lake Biwa, Fukuoka, Tokyo between now and March, three very big races with elite fields from all over the world. There's a possibility Osaka gets knocked out because only two of the athletes are guaranteed their position on the Olympic team. So these were the first two male marathoners chosen for the Paris Olympics in 2024. Phil, as we look ahead at what the United States could be doing in marathoning down the road, I like this format as an option for the U.S. marathon trials. So two of the three representatives were picked at the Grand Championships. I'd like to see us do the same, whether it's two or maybe only the winner at the trials is guaranteed a spot onto the team. Then that leaves a spot as a discretion pick that could be based on performances at events like your World Marathon Majors or U.S. Championships. And it allows for consideration of time like the Japanese are Mm -hmm. doing. And in their case, they're doing time with an emphasis on time at big domestic races, which I like even more because that continues to grow the sport. If we're going to say majors, why not narrow it down to say it's got to be at Boston, New York or Chicago on our soil? Yeah. Part of the reason I like this, it allows the trials to stay viable which is a big fear of mine, particularly going beyond 2028 in Los Angeles. I I think it will still be a viable event, but those costs that we saw at Atlanta, how few cities really wanted to bid this year. Um, Mm -hmm. But it also mitigates against the concern of the top contender who gets sick, food poisoning that week or has a niggle. 2016, let's just pick random year, 2016 on the men's side. Galen Rupp was such a lock by far the best American runner. Can we possibly eliminate the situation where if what if a freak occurrence happened that day and we didn't put him on the line? Generally, there was agreement he deserved to be on that team in 16 or uh, the better example would be 20 because in 16, that was actually his marathon debut. We just knew Mm -hmm. his, uh, his debut at the trials, excuse me, because we knew he was an elite track runner, half marathoner. 
another option possibly for our trials, Phil, is to kind of roll them back into one of our big domestic races as we had done in the past, uh, you know, put them on the same weekend as a New York or a Houston or whatever it might be. But uh, what do you think about maybe using the, the Japanese system for the American trials, both men and women? I really like that for, for a couple of reasons. One, the way it stands now, it's such a great celebration of not just the elite American distance running, but the sub-elite American distance running. Your your post-collegiates and your you know guys that certainly aren't ever going to make the Olympics, but that can still throw down some very fast times can come and celebrate what they're doing. But then as well, having a secondary opportunity, whether it's at one of the domestic marathon uh, domestic majors, of having a lot of the American contenders show up for that one race versus having you know a fall calendar where our best runners are all over the world racing, you know, versus everybody coming to Chicago to try to get that last spot. I mean, you look at what happened to Chicago this year with you know, Emily Sisson, Molly Sadell, Emma Bates, Des Linden. I mean, it was somewhat of a preview of the, what the mm-hmm. women's field is going to look like, but there's still a lot of names missing that would have been fun to see toe the line. And then my third point, I guess, would be that with having the trials and the results just on the one day, you have a potential contender for the Olympics, like we did in Galen Rupp in 2016, you know, for the, the podium at the Olympics, that they may have an off day and not even make the team versus you know, giving them a second shot somewhere else in the calendar. Yeah, what you said about the trials being a celebration of the next tier of runner is part of why I don't want it to go away. Mm-hmm. I want people to continue to chase that, uh, what was for previous cycles, the 219 and 245 dream. Those times, of course, been reduced now moving forward to make it harder to get there. But I'm okay with that because raising the bar generally leads to our top runners matching that bar. It's the mm-hmm. same phenomenon as at uh, Boston when they reduce uh, their cutoff times. People still hit yeah. times and it, they still have to go under the cutoff to to make the actual race. So I don't want to see that go away because I also think that's just good for the sport more broadly. It adds attention to the sport. It adds enthusiasm to the sport. And the more people we get on that stage, the better shot of we that we have of someone breaking through. Yeah. So I like this hybrid style system because I don't want to de-emphasize that you got to show up on the day. That's the way the Olympics are. Yeah. Uh, And this would still require you to show up somewhere to get that last spot. But it's interesting in a a lot of other countries where they have no trial at all, some of the people yearn for that. Whereas here where we have a trial, some people think, why are we not just picking the best guys and girls? Because half these people get on the line and don't have a shot to make the team. Yeah. Maybe the answer is is in in betwixt, Phil. Maybe we we <laughs> go with the hybrid. And I I just think it could be a really fun thing going forward. I know there will be energy and enthusiasm for 2028 because the Olympics will be here in LA, but beyond that, you know, 2032 in Brisbane, and maybe this is an option we consider. Phil, New York City Marathon in two weeks. Uh, we will not be recording before then because our next episode will be in our Road to LA 84 series that we did through the spring and summer. We're coming back because now we're on the 40th anniversary of some of those fall marathons that built up towards LA 84. So I'll be doing one of those for our next episode. So let's go ahead and jump into a little bit of a New York preview. The fields were 
dealt a blow this week, Phil. Two-time champ Jeffrey Camor is out. Defending champ Evans Chabet is out, both with injury. Women's race, Lona Salpeter from Israel is out. World champ, Gadatam Gebreslasi, that's the world champ from last year, actually, in Eugene, (laughs) out as well. Uh, So it could be more wide open, particularly in the men's race. The women's field was exceptionally deep. Before I turn it over to you, some names to watch for me. Ed Cheserick makes his debut, the Oregon Duck icon. I think he'll be up near the front. I really like Canadian Cam Levins, who had a, a great run in Tokyo last spring. He's an interesting story, too, here. Just the Kelvin Kiptum parallels. Mm-hmm. Kelvin Kiptum, some of the training came out this week. I'm not sure anyone trains the same combination of volume and quality as Cam Levins and Kelvin Kiptum. <laughs> this is the guy who we've known historically has, has tripled, who has run upwards of uh, 150, 180 miles a week. It finally paid off for him in a big way with the North American record in the spring. I don't know that that number is in danger given the course at, at New York, but he could be a threat. I'll take your guy, Abdi Nagay, to win this just because he trained with Sir Mo. And I know <laughs> the pick will upset you. So I'm going with Abdi from the Netherlands, who has been sniffing around some major marathons. Let me run through some women's names for you, Phil. Okay. Your defending champion, Sharon Locati, Boston champ, Helen O'Beary is there, former world record holder, Bridget Kosgai, uh, Let's Bet Gaday, who is on the short list of fastest times for every event between 5,000 and the marathon, Edna Kiplagat, who has won across the board in majors. That, that's a dynamite field setting up in two weeks in New York. Dr. Phil, who you got, men's and women's champs? Oh, well, you didn't mention Helen O'Beary on your uh, your start list for New York. I kind of like I actually I actually just said her about uh, 20 seconds ago, Phil. I'm glad that we're so focused on one another. <laughs> oh. I feel like in our relationship. I'm revealing my notes here. And I, I'm paying yeah, to there it is. Okay, there's the admission. And in our relationship, we're at a point where you hear me, but don't really listen to me. Right. Well, I'll... I'll Give the line that I tell my wife. It's like, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, Travis. <laughs> Isn't that something, babe? Oh, <laughs> please tell me more. <laughs> okay. So Helen O'Beary, who I did mention, that's your favorite to win on the women's side? Oh, that's my pick. She's been racing well. She's had a couple of really good, like half and full races recently. I'd like to see her do well. I'm curious about Cam Levins, because I think that's uh, an interesting parallel with Kelvin Kiptoon. Of course, Levins has been running that kind of mileage since he was... For a decade plus, yeah. For what, a decade <laughs> yeah. more or more? Yeah. Um, so it, that being said, he has often kind of been back and forth on the injury roller coaster. So it's mm-hmm. good to see him healthy. And so I, I, I don't know. I, let's go with him. Um, but to be honest, this this is kind of the the stepchild of the the fall marathons between what we've had at Berlin and Chicago this year with the loaded fields there. Um, yeah, I think for the men with the folks who have withdrawn, you're right. I still think this women's field is dynamite. I didn't make a women's pick. I'm going to take G'day by a hair over Helen O'Beary. I like your O'Beary pick. And I'll go I'll go in with you. I'm going to say Cam Levins is on the podium. Okay. I'm going to give him a top three finish. I like that. 
we will in the future, we'll discuss more about the merits of that training, uh, what we can learn from it. And it does wrap into some of what we've discussed in the Road to LA series with the way the Japanese marathoners train their high mm-hmm. mileage approach. We have two marathon related listener questions that I guess we'll wrap it up with here. Phil, do you want to hit me with one of those? Yeah, I thought these were quite interesting that um, we got sent in. And the first one is, how do I set up marathon pace for workouts when I've never raced a marathon or even a longer race? Uh, and I think this refers to even something longer than like a, a 10K. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I haven't raced even a half marathon, of course you can use a calculator online to try to navigate something. But if you haven't raced farther than 10K and haven't maybe done the long runs necessary for marathon training, those estimates on the calculators are just that. They're estimates. I would start by by reflecting on your goals for the race. And if you have a number in mind that really is a strong goal to you, I would use it in the early phases and then find out how challenging that effort is to you. If it's abundantly clear that even two or three mile chunks at that pace are really straining you, then it's a time to dial back and and reconsider. Also, you don't need to be doing a ton of marathon-paced work early in a marathon training cycle. You could still be heightening those other skills and in that time racing those distances and allow you to get a better idea of what you're capable of. Maybe after you've done some longer runs, done a longer race or two, maybe you step up to 15K or run a half marathon. You know, you don't have to race in a buildup, but that could be valuable in this circumstance. So early on in the build, I might just formulate a goal time and use it to direct and inform my marathon paced efforts and then recalibrate somewhere in the, maybe it's eight weeks out uh, from the race when you start to do more specific work and consider how much the effort requires at that point, what you're comfortable with. You know, you could also use some some more hard data too. This could be the place to look at heart rate data. If you can compare it to what your heart rate is like for racing other distances, what it looks like in in the workout. But it's just always important to remember that marathon pace can feel a lot harder in practice and probably should feel a lot harder in practice than it does on race day. But even with that said, you really don't want it to be super hard in practice because you're, you're asking too much if it's a big challenge in practice. Thoughts, Phil? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the, the first point you made is tremendous in terms of not putting so much faith in either these online calculators or even some of these predictors that your watch or the Strava or Garmin Connect may, may create for you, because those can be sometimes wildly inaccurate. I do think heart rate in this case is a pretty valuable tool, maybe not necessarily to target and help you set you know, your goal pace, but particularly as you get later in the cycle to get an idea of where your heart rate is for an easy run, where it sits during your harder efforts and kind of, exactly. I, I wish I could give numbers, but unfortunately it's not that simple, but to at least help you tie in your effort to your field, to, to how fast you're going and give you a governor on where marathon pace truly should be. 
Um, hey, if, you, if you're running threshold reps, three minute, five minute, whatever threshold reps at a heart rate of make it up 170 and you're doing marathon segments, you know, repeat miles at marathon effort uh, that you perceive as effort or goal pace, whether you're using pace or effort, they're at 175. That's a sign mm-hmm. that's not marathon. Yeah. Too fast. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I think is somewhat useful, again, not to help you dial towards a specific 720 versus 725 pace or eight minutes versus 810 pace, but, you know, a faster finish long run where, mm-hmm. you know, the last handful of miles on tired legs of trying to add a little bit more effort in there, seeing what that does just in terms of how it feels, but also to your heart rate. And that can kind of help you dial it a little bit closer between what you may know is your 10K pace and what you may know is your easy run and kind of find a benchmark somewhere around there. But then keeping in mind during the race that you want those first several miles to feel easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me build from that. My best advice to this runner is do workouts that are going to get you as fit as possible in preparation for this race. But the first time you get into a marathon, if you are not, say, an elite runner chasing a standard, like I got to hit a male 218 to get to the Olympic trials, or you're not chasing, say, a Boston qualifier, if you don't have a hard number like one of those two to chase, I suspect the best thing to do is to get as fit as you can, do the long runs, do good workouts that are in this 10K, 15K, half marathon type effort scenario. And then get on the race start line thinking, as you just said, I need these first miles to be really controlled. And then just keep thinking that and keep thinking that and think it to about 30K. Mm-hmm. And then just, it's like your, your fast finish long run you're describing, but it's on race day. And then close as hard as I can from there. And you're going to yeah. indicator of, okay, this is about what I can run a marathon in. Now, when I really train going forward, I know what I can do. I think that sets you up for the best success in the, in the marathon debut for the average runner. Mm-hmm. Well, and that sensation as well of this, that first half to 30K of almost feeling like you have your foot on the brake mm-hmm. of that, you know, you could go faster, but you have the wisdom to know you shouldn't because once you get to 18 miles and beyond, that's a whole different ball game. And then that's when it's time to start working towards whatever your final time will be. Well said. Let's hit the second question, Phil. So similar, similar vein, but how do I handle marathon pace when I have a large uphill on the course and a fear of spiking heart rate? This is a great question and a reminder that the marathon, particularly early, as we just said, at least through halfway, but maybe well beyond there, is about rhythm and effort more than it is about pace. And I would be honing into effort on this type of course. One, I would want to practice that. I would want to get on terrain, if possible, where I can get hills that are similar, perhaps even slightly more challenging than what I'll get on race day. And remember that it's okay to give back. Let's say you got a big hill that's really long. Maybe I got to give back 30 seconds in a mile. That's okay. The effort level should be comparable to what it feels like when you're running the flat leading into it. 
It's also okay if you get near the top of that hill and you feel that uh, we could use heart rate again, or that perception of effort starting to rise up toward like a threshold type effort. It's okay to have a few seconds at the top where you get to that point, as long as when you get off of that, you settle it back down. So let's assume you're coming back downhill. I want to just keep my effort level consistent early in the race off of this big hill. Naturally coming down, that's going to get me some time back. Uh, If it's back onto a flat, I have to be even more controlled and not try to get it all back at once. That's that's Mm -hmm. a big thing too. Don't try to get the time back immediately. In practice, in your training, understanding perception of effort will allow you to handle a big hill. But the hill's bigger than you. It's going to win. You're not. And do not, under any circumstance, feel that you have to run the same pace up the hill. It's about the effort being more even. The pace could potentially, I want to give that a caveat, the pace could potentially be the same as what you've done on the flat leading into it. If this is referring to a large uphill, much closer to the end of of a marathon. But as we understood the question, this was talking about something happening early in the race, and I don't want it to throw off heart rate. You're not racing to hit a certain heart rate. You're racing to cover the ground as fast as you can. And it's okay if it spikes a little, but you can control it. If it spikes a lot and you can't control it, then you're up against the wall. So trying to press the pace on an uphill is concerning to me. I would also just from a tactical perspective advise coming out of this hill and and maybe going into like, let's just say a 10 or a dozen choppy strides. I would do the same thing out of a big downhill just to kind of reset the stride and get on a more normal cadence because going uphill or downhill, that can look very different than what it might look like on the rest of the race. So try to get yourself into just more comfortable and normal mechanics could be helpful as well. Well, and this is one scenario where, you know, we've talked about monitoring training and metrics and that sort of thing in the past, but I think there is some value to running power here mm-hmm. where there's some correlation between pace, heart rate and running power, but th- that shifts a little bit as we go uphill, but having that external feedback beyond the heart rate, beyond the pace, but that's a mechanical metric, if you will, mm-hmm. to kind of put a governor on where uh, your pacing should be. I think there's some value to that. I also think just from a training perspective, incorporating long runs that include a lot of hills in them gets you comfortable measuring that effort as you get tired or even just in the middle of the run where if you push that long run hard early over those hills, you won't be as strong towards the finish as you would be if you measured your effort. So it's kind of learning how to run hills in your training. And I agree as well with with your point on rhythm that, you know, it's grooving what that effort should feel like and paying attention to that as you you go up the hill, but then also paying attention to what that does to you as you come back down the hill and return to the flats and not letting that momentum either carry you at a pace that's faster than you than you want or try to make up ground you know, as you get back onto the flats. Yeah, a race like this, I'm, I'm probably just going with the mantra in my mind, marathon effort, marathon rhythm. If I'm on a hilly course, whether it's up or down, 
I'm just driving that in throughout the race, just making sure I'm staying in touch with that. Uh, Your point of long run over hills goes to my final recommendation here. What does your training look like to prepare yourself for Mm -hmm. a challenging course, course with big uphills? Number one, I'm doing long runs over hills. We've talked about this some recently. I'm probably doing them early in a marathon cycle regardless, but they're particularly significant here. I'm going to do some tempo runs over hills where I do not have my watch splitting times. I am not looking at mile splits. Uh, This would be Mm -hmm. a great time for some sort of hilly circuit that you could use where it queues up so that let's just say your marathon goal is seven minute pace but you're doing this and maybe you're hitting some 645s and some 7s and some 730s, but the effort's consistent. You're just locked into that long tempo for, for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. And then you can look back at the data afterward. You're not caught up in the splits you're getting immediately and thinking, oh, I'm going too fast. Or I'm going too slow. No, I'm locked into a good rhythm. Those runs would be very valuable And then, of course, just classic hill repeats. This sounds like something that a a summer of hills would get you really prepped for. uh, (laughs) 30, 60, 90 seconds, however long. Hill reps just to get comfortable and strong, you know, in good form over this. So you're not broken by this hill, but you can come out of it feeling stronger than your competition and more prepared to move into the later phases of this race. All right, Phil, that will do it. Other than we do have some late breaking news during the recording. This just came out. Maybe a future marathoner, since this has been a whole marathon episode. Grant Fisher leaving Bowerman Track Club, destination to be determined. But America's, I think we would say, premier distance runner on the track, mm-hmm. leaving America's premier distance running team. It'd be fascinating where he ends up. Do you want to make a prediction? Uh, who, oh, I was going to ask Fisher. Yeah, who's where he trained with? Because the your your premier distance group is really kind of falling apart the past year or so with all the exodus from from Bowerman. Um, yeah, it's been replaced. I think with his departure, it, it's easier now to say your premier distance group in the United States is the on athletic club team. And that, that would be on my short list of where he ends up either, you know, being coached by Nathan Ritzenheim with that on group, potentially (laughs) Mike Smith, their Flagstaff. That was the other person I thought of as well to go to Uh Flagstaff uh, under Mike Smith, or perhaps to be there part of the time and coached remotely the rest of the time, like Galen Rupp has done. Uh, but there's a stable of runners there now under Mike Smith that it would make some sense that he could run with uh, a Woody Kincaid or a Galen Rupp. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, since that team moved to Eugene, that's led to, uh, it seems like some of those folks wanted to be in Portland, not in Eugene uh, mm-hmm. with the college team that, that Jerry's coaching now. So this will be interesting to see and what this means for his training. I mean, you know, he's coming off an American record, like within the past month at pre-classic after that uh-huh. return from injury. So you would have to think there's some underlying, it might not be the training because that's been successful, but maybe cultural or social or emotional issues that he's just not comfortable in the current setting. Well, and that's got to be a challenge for for Schumacher to, to balance of overseeing the the collegiate program there while also kind of navigating the professional ranks too. I mean, that you only have so much energy and attention you can give and, and coming from just the pro only ranks where uh, he was, he may want need a little more attention than he's able to get right now. 
And Mike Smith seems to be uh, balancing those two things pretty well. Uh, that's <laughs> a fair that. counterpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess it can be done. Quick tidbits before we go. We did want to give a shout to a friend of the show, Jonathan Davis. JD went 40 miles for age 40 with a whole bunch of guys running with him in a great celebration of his birthday and just the running community. So really cool to see that from a friend of the show. Also wanted to congratulate a few of our runners on good performances at Chicago, uh, including our sometimes co-host who, you know, won't even show up around here anymore. It's been like two years. Cosmo is back. Oh, he's he's too good for us these days. Ran, ran at the exact same time as one of our other runners, Dennis Nash, who had a nice run at Chicago as well. And then congrats to a whole bunch of people we work with uh, who were at the Columbus Marathon this past weekend as well. Super excited for all those races and looking forward to seeing more of the fall running here with New York, CIM, and everything else that's on the way. So, Phil, we will leave it there. Look forward to next time, Mile 160 on Seconds Flat, presented by Columbus Running Company. I will talk to you soon. We look forward to seeing everybody next time. Have a great week.